Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Diagnosing, Diagnosing a, a Killer. Killer. Why do you sound like Because I want to hear the end of the story. <laughs> so, Kowal didn't know it was going to be a part two, and it's a motherfucking part two. guys for joining us hopefully this reaches you about like two days after the part one comes yeah. out so you wouldn't have to wait that long and i'm really excited to get going podcast movie magic makes it seem like i've waited this whole time with y'all but i'm actually i waited all of maybe a minute yeah for kenna to just switch to the next file <laughs> just open up a new tab and just start recording again so i'm gonna get to know before everyone else so we're gonna get on with part two of patrick kearney and part one we talked about his hella long list of victims. I'm sorry that you had to sit through that, but it's very important to show what a piece of shit this guy is. Yeah. We talked about his on-again, off-again relationship with David, who seemingly left about a couple years before this, but all of a sudden, he seems to have been there the whole time. Apparently. So we're going to get a, into... That was a big twist. I did that on purpose. Thank Ugh, you. Anyway. It was good. It was brilliant. <laughs> How much does this guy spend on trash bags? Honestly, though, you know, actually, they'll find his stash in a little bit. <laughs> stash so of trash bags. Stash of trash. Now, where we left off, they had just pinned the murder of John on Patrick and, and David. David. So police are honing in on them. Police arrived on the doorstep of Patrick and David, who just invited them to go ahead and come on inside. Come on inside. The two appeared to be very relaxed and concerned about the boys that were missing, but expressing their shock, but also seeming adamant that they were both completely innocent. While the police were there, they gathered fibers from the carpet. They did this because for the first time in all of the trash bag murders, there was some carpet fibers left on the tape that sealed the bag. Idiots. He got fucking sloppy. Dummies. As it turned out, the carpet fibers from the house were an exact match with the carpet fibers on the tape. You don't say. Although this was a great lead for the police, as soon as they left the home the first time, Patrick almost immediately went to destroy all of the collections of things from his obsessions with serial killers. Wow. They see all that shit, they're going to be like, hmm, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he destroyed all of that in case the police came back to look further. A little while later, police, sure enough, showed back at the Kearney Hill home and asked the two men for samples of both of their pubic hairs mm -hmm. and a sample of the hair from their dog that they shared together. Why did they need this, you ask? Investigators had also found hair evidence on John's body, so Patrick was getting really fucking sloppy. Yeah. This probably had something to do with the fact that he must have thought David was coming home soon, so he had to be quick, and he was just forgetting to get rid of all these fibers, right? Quote, unquote. Yeah. He rushed. He rushed to get that done. The two men complied and gave their hair samples as well as the dogs, but as soon as detectives left, they began to get worried that it was not going to go well for them. Well, if it wasn't already obvious, all of the evidence matched with the hair samples given, and it was perfect evidence to get a search warrant for the home. Mm -hmm. So this is the end, right? They're caught. Case closed. Yeah. The police did not waste any time showing up to the house with a search warrant. But when they arrived and knocked, wouldn't you know it, nobody answered the door. Oh, I thought you were going to say the house is on fire. <laughs> that would have been a twist. <laughs> that would have been a big twist. They proceeded into the home and found that David and Patrick were nowhere to be found. 
They had fled to El Paso, Texas in order to escape capture. Damn. And then I was like, oh no, it's going to be like a a murder, uh, unalive situation. Yeah. Yeah. The two men not being there did not stop police from conducting their search, and what they found was hella damning. A hacksaw was found and was clearly the tool used to dismember most of the bodies. However, the blade had been replaced, so it was unlikely that there would be any evidence on it because hmm. it was a new blade. <laughs> You'd think so, but Patrick was not a brilliant cleaner, and he missed some blood and tissue that was actually wedged in the corners of the handle of the blade. The samples collected were a perfect match for John LeMay. Interesting. A search of the bathroom uncovered blood everywhere. Not visible to the naked eye, but under luminol, it lit up like a Christmas tree. Police also found numerous rolls of nylon filament tape, very eerily similar to the tape used to secure the garbage bags. (laughs) Dummies. Dummies. When the authorities searched Patrick's work office at Hughes Aircraft, because he was somehow still fucking working there, they found the same industrial-style garbage bags used in more of, mm. than 20 murders, which were all immediately linked to him after so this. So he was discovery. stealing them from work? I think he was stashing them at work. Oh, Maybe he was them stealing them from work. Yeah. In order to get their names out there, police put out wanted posters all around the West Coast with photos of both Patrick and David's faces on them. Meanwhile, David and Patrick were still hiding out in El Paso, Texas, but they quickly grew tired of life on the run, and with a little bit of persuasion by their families, they decided to turn themselves in. (gasps) No way! Have you ever heard of a serial killer turning themselves in like this? Just wait for it. On July 1st, 1977, at around 1.30pm, Patrick and David waltzed right into the Riverside County Sheriff's Office and did something so unusual, it caught a lot of attention from the media. The two walked up to the deputy at the counter, pointed at the wanted poster on the wall with their names and pictures, and calmly stated, We're them. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, Yeah, the fuck you are! Looks back and looks at the poster, looks at them, looks at the poster, looks at them. (laughs) It's like they're wearing the same fucking clothes. And they're like, uh, let me, let me, let me just call someone real quick. (laughs) Of course, the two were immediately arrested and booked on suspicion of two murders. Only two. Because they hadn't linked them all to everybody yet. Who was it? It was... It was Albert Rivera, the very first time they had a break in the case, and John LeMay. Okay. However, the investigators wanted to question them about potentially being connected to six additional ones as well. The very next day, the two were arraigned in front of a judge, and their bail was set at $500,000 per person in the 70s. It was the 70s. (laughs) Patrick made the decision to fully cooperate with authorities from the start, and he immediately offered to give a full confession. I guess he was just tired of killing. Mm -hmm. Tired of moitering. Oh, no. During this confession, he stated, quote, The murders excited me and gave me a feeling of dominance. The mere idea of murdering a person was, quote, sexually exciting. Fucking disgusting. When the detectives began to question him about targeting Marines and plying his victims with drugs and alcohol, Patrick stared at them blankly. When they further pressed the issue by asking him if he had ever inserted anything more than his penis into the rectums of his victims. Oh no, they think he's someone else. Patrick answered, stating he had used towels on his bathroom floor while he dismembered the victims to keep the bodies from leaking fluids all over the room. However, detectives were not satisfied with his answer, so they continued the same line of questioning. 
mostly because they wanted to be able to close the books on all of the freeway killings that were happening around the time. Hmm. Their questions continued. Quote, Did you ever torture your victims? Did you ever shove anything in their rectum for the joy of doing so? Now, I'm sure you remember this because you brought the case, but listeners, <laughs> do you remember that we talked about Randy Kraft, the fact that he would frequently put things in his victims' rectums so police were just trying to figure out if Patrick were responsible for all of these murders or just some. Right, and Kraft was also known to pick up Marines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After a few more questions, Patrick began to understand what they were trying to find out. <sighs> just because he also studied the serial killers, right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> He shook his head at police and said, quote, I'm not the wooden stake. It seemed as though he knew precisely what authorities were trying to get him to confess to doing. However, the process of impaling, torturing, strangling victims was not something he was capable of, as he preferred a small caliber bullet to the head. As if this was not creepy enough, Patrick appeared to be offended when authorities compared him to the likes of Randy Kraft and William Bonin. <laughs> he's like could you know could you imagine I'm my own motherfucking yeah. person like he has pride in his work and i'm not sloppy like those i'm not sl- well i don't know if he's not I mean, sloppy. he was <laughs> he was at the end but yeah to be offended that you were like accused of doing someone else like no i would never do that well, that is beneath me it's like andre chikatillo he's like oh i'm not a thief i've never stolen anything i murdered I all these murdered people, people but i am not a thief but i'm not a thief and that was the one thing he could not stand to be called yeah the original investigation into the trash bag murders began on April 13th, 1975, when the remains of 21-year-old Albert Rivera were discovered along Highway 74. His dismembered body parts were found in industrial-style garbage bags. However, in Patrick's confession, which happened in both letters and conversations, he admitted that his killings actually started in the mid-60s. Hmm. He eventually led detectives to where he buried, quote, George, one of his first victims. They actually... Don't know if that's his real name, but that's what he referred to him as. Mm-hmm. Everything he spoke about regarding that murder lined up perfectly, showing police that he was not fibbing. Patrick confessed that after he killed George, he was so paranoid that he did not kill again for another year. When nobody showed up to arrest him, he figured that he had gotten away with murder. Detectives also interviewed multiple people around the life of Patrick, one of whom was his former neighbor. She recalled that she did occasionally hear gunshots close by, but she never thought that they were coming from their home. Yeah. Again, Patrick confessed with a series of letters as well as conversations. So in these letters, he actually wrote out the names of each victim and the locations of where he disposed their bodies. Sounds like Kraft again, right? Because, right, Kraft was, yeah, Kraft yeah. had the journal and the photographs and everything. And he, he gave them all uh, code names. God, awful. Yeah. He told police that he preferred to dump bodies in the desert because of the various insects and animal that could carry off the evidence before someone realized that the body was there. He told the detectives, quote, Things disappear very rapidly in the desert. You can put a small animal on an anthill and it disappears right in front of your eyes. Wow. Which is really gross. Because that shows that he fucking did that. Right, that he's done it before. As the detectives were putting together this story of Patrick, they realized that he was not as perfect as he seemed as getting away with murder for so long. In fact, there were actually numerous occasions that he found himself in potential danger of being caught. He recanted that one of the times he had killed a victim, he was driving out to the desert to dump the body when he was faced with a flat tire. He pulled the truck over in order to change the tire, but found himself in a bind and was forced to call a tow truck in order to take his truck to a nearby service station. With the body in it? Patrick recalled that when the tow truck showed up and took his truck to the station, 
All he was able to do was stand by and watch as they fixed his flat tire for him, all the while garbage bags in his back seat containing the dismembered body of his most recent victim. Holy shit. He stated that he remembers sweating bullets the whole time, but for some reason he was able to leave that day with a new tire and no suspicion. Another time he recalled that he was almost caught was when he was out canvassing potential dump sites and he accidentally locked his keys in his car. He decided it was probably safer for him to try to jimmy the lock open with a coat hanger rather than call for assistance. He stated being anxious and nervous the whole time because he once again had a back seat full of garbage bags with remains. Patrick recalled that as soon as he got in the car and was able to dump the body, he felt this weight lift off of his shoulders, mostly because he was safe from being caught, but he also remembered feeling immense power and having a great feeling of accomplishment from being able to get away with this, only furthering his narcissism and giving him the mindset to keep killing. That is absolutely incredible. Twice that we know of that he's willing to confess that he almost got caught. So we've heard all about Patrick's interrogation and confession, but what about David? Yeah, what about David? <laughs> was he Linda? an accomplice? Or was he able to keep this secret all these years with Patrick? Or was he really left in the dark the whole time? The Riverside County District Attorney convened a grand jury to determine what Patrick and David's charges would be. But after only three hours of hearing the evidence, the jury actually decided that they would not indict David Hill on any charges at all. Oh, that's some horse shit. How do you not know that? I, and I, we've heard it before, folks. Where people don't realize they're living with serial killers or serial rapists. But, like, there was clearly evidence all throughout the house. Yeah. Like, clearly. He probably saw his fucking shrine to, like, Brady Craft and, like, the Zodiac Killer and all this stuff. Yeah, of course. Upon receiving the news that David is clear and good to go, his public defender, Malcolm McMillan, picked him up from jail under the guise of secrecy in order to protect him from the mob of reporters and journalists that were outside. Once he was officially a free man, David went back home to Lubbock, Texas. In a press release following David's release, Riverside District Attorney Byron Morton said, quote, The evidence against Mr. Hill was weak. He also added that the information gathered by investigators ultimately exonerated David, and he was not shocked when the grand jury decided to not file any charges against him. Lastly, he stated that he did not believe that there was sufficient evidence to prove David guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in Superior Court. <laughs> According to Patrick, David was, quote, neither involved in nor aware of the murders. Hmm. He took the fall for everything. And like, I don't want to say he took it, the fall because he did it, obviously. It's Lee and Ty all over again. Yeah. yeah. He claimed sole responsibility and he admitted to committing the murders while David was out of the house after one of their many fights. I mean, it kind of makes sense. He was usually gone. It's true. And that's, you know, even uh, Tyria was like, I don't want to hear anything you do out there. Yeah. Not only because it probably grossed her out. Yeah. Because she didn't want Lee prostituting, but she also didn't want to be like, no, in case any any shit goes down, yeah. I'm not going to be responsible know about this. it. Yeah. yeah. Now we're going to talk about the trial now. Patrick's attorney wanted to go for a not guilty by reason of insanity plea. However, as they, as they do. Yeah. However, going against his attorney's wishes, Patrick ultimately switched his plea from not guilty to guilty. Just, you know, it's so in right now. <laughs> just to plea guilty. He's just so random. It's just, yeah, he's quirky. <laughs> he's quirky. He pleaded guilty to the original three murder charges, his only request being that he receive his sentence immediately and not be given the death penalty. So he didn't want any time between sentencing and incarceration, and he just didn't want the death penalty. put me away and let me rot in a cell for forever. Yeah. 
This was a moot point, however, because the death penalty apparently didn't go into effect in this area until August of 77, and every murder he committed was every murder he committed was before this point in time. So right. the death penalty wouldn't have been an option to begin with. Yeah. Fucking dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to die. Right. I read elsewhere that the death penalty went into effect for specific crimes in 1973, but I think it was just special circumstances that made this one delayed. I'm not exactly sure. Like, worse than committing that many murders? Well, I think it was, like, the area. I don't think it was, like, what he did. I think it was, like, the area that he was in, or maybe the area of the crimes. I don't... I really don't know. It didn't really explain yeah. much about that, but... Either way, he wasn't going to get the death penalty regardless. During Patrick's sentencing on the first three murder charges for Albert Rivera, Arturo Merquez, and John LeMay, Superior Judge John Hughes gave him life in prison with the possibility of parole after only seven years. For those three murders. Seven years? Yeah. He stood in court again for the rest of the murder charges. Eighteen to be exact. (laughs) I'm not sure why he was tried in two separate trials. However, this is just how it played out. Okay, this is... I'm just reading from the fucking... They gave him an ankle monitor and sent him on his way. Yeah. This time, he was sentenced by a judge, Breckenridge, who stated, quote, This defendant has certainly perpetrated a series of ghastly and grisly crimes. I can only hope the community release board will never release Mr. Kearney. He appears to be an insult to humanity. Damn. Hell yeah. When it was all over... Patrick was known to commit 32 murders, being charged for 21, and received 21 life sentences. Okay. On top of this, he also admitted to murdering four people whose bodies have yet to be recovered, and seven of his listed victims have yet to be identified. Wow. As far as the murder that ultimately led to his demise, John LeMay's name will go down in history for being the one that led to Patrick Kearney being put behind bars. Wow. It seemed like such an innocent comment stating to his neighbor that he was going to meet a man named Dave. However, it's that comment specifically that would nab Patrick for good. I have full body goosebumps. Even more interesting that David allegedly had nothing to do with the crimes and was more than likely inviting John over just to hang out. But he was the link between John and Patrick. Right. John's mother was quoted saying later about the murderer, quote, I feel like John helped. That's the one consolation. She also went on to say, quote, I hope they can find out what makes somebody kill like that. John's mother described him as a loving boy who made friends easily, including girlfriends, and who had never caused her any heartache before the learned circumstances of his death. Mm. Many other people were questioned about the two men between the time they were suspected and the time that Patrick was convicted. One source, whom declined to provide his name, disclosed that he was a close friend of David's for several years, provided a more detailed account of the two men and the life they shared together. This source characterized Patrick as a quiet and shy man who kept his bedroom door locked at all times. They also described him as strange and mentioned that he would become upset when David would invite guests over to the house, suggesting why he did not like that John came over. Interesting. The source also mentioned that David was reserved at times and at other times he could, quote, have us in stitches. Like, he was funny, mm-hmm. obviously. <laughs> or he, he didn't think stab us that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Left us in stitches. <laughs> He also mentioned that over the more than five years that him and David were close, there were only two encounters that suggested to him that violence may have played a part in Patrick and David's relationship. He said that once, David displayed for him a small gun that was kept in the house, and on another occasion, he was with the couple in a small plane piloted by Patrick when David asked Patrick to engage in a sexual act. When Patrick refused, David opened the aircraft door and threatened to throw Patrick out. What? (laughs) 
It was unclear whether or not this was serious, but it kind of seemed to be a joke. Like, they were like, but I don't know. Like, fucking, he's flying the plane, you're gonna throw his out every That's, oh my god. Right? That's like, that's so extra. It's like one so of those toxic. relationships you don't want to be around because it's like makes you like secondhand yeah. uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. During much of their friendship, this source stated that David always seemed to struggle with some type of guilt, and he said that he always seemed afraid of going to hell and felt as though he was living in a nightmare and wanted to make up. This kind of tells me that he knew more than he let on about the murders, just saying. However, the source stated that he was always chalking this up to David having a hard time accepting his homosexuality. Mm. He also stated that he detected some type of psychological hold that Patrick had over David, and others mentioned noticing things of the sort as well. Speaking of psychology, this is a true crime mental health podcast. Mm -hmm. A psychiatrist who interviewed Patrick after his arrest determined that he had an IQ of 180. What? Which is well above what is considered to be genius, which would be 140. Okay, I thought it was like 130, 135. The highest IQ ever recorded is a 225. Fucking, like, you, like, controlled the universe. Who was that? Stephen Hawking? No, it was some child. Oh. Um... So no, it was just some child. Yeah, it's just some kid. <laughs> um, 100 is considered average. Above 140. 140 is genius, quote-unquote. Okay. Uh, didn't uh, Kemper have, like, a 140 or a 136 or something? I actually don't know. That's a good question. I think I Kemper had a pretty high IQ. Look it up. Googling. 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 So, again, he has an IQ of 180, which is baffling, putting him at the intelligence level of others, such as Stephen Hawking, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, and others that made the books, of course. 180 is ridiculous. That is that is a lot. What is it? Kemper, he had an IQ of 145. Oh, wow. So that's so why yeah. I was like, I knew it was something ridiculous. Well, and then, okay, look, this is good. Get this. The psychiatrist suggested that this extremely high IQ could explain how Patrick was able to get away with murder for as long as he did. He could outsmart anybody, become insanely persuasive, charming, and likable. This also gave him the knowledge to cover his tracks and evade the police for as long as he did. Wow. Today, Patrick is 82 years old. Today? And he is still being held at Mule Creek State Prison in California. 82. He has been known to write essays, even having some of them published over the years, which is wild. As it turns out, the Trashbag murders have gone down in history as one of the most vicious crimes of the 20th century America, ranking Patrick up there with the most infamous serial killers such as Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Jeffrey Dahmer. In a public statement shortly after his conviction, Los Angeles homicide sergeant Al Set made the statement about Patrick, quote, If he hadn't gotten sloppy, consciously or unconsciously, he'd probably still be doing it today. Oh, yeah, guaranteed. It's estimated that Patrick Kearney had between 21 and 43 victims. I'm still going. (laughs) Sorry. That is incredible. Now, it's very clear that on top of being a heinous killer, Patrick suffered from a number of different issues. He was a necrophiliac from the start, a pedophile, a zoophene, which is animal, Animals, of course, yeah. and child molester. However, on top of all of this, he was a serial killer. So I want to talk about what psychologists know about average serial killers. And this is all a quote. I, this is not my words. I want to make sure that I'm not plagiarizing. This is from Psychology Today, I think. Quote, According to some psychologists, the act of serial killing is similar to an addiction. The theory is that once the person starts killing people, often by accident the first time, they become addicted to murder like a junkie becomes addicted to drugs. That kind of sounds like Eileen Warnos. The yeah. first time it was an accident killing, but then she was like, oh crap, I kind of like that. You yeah. Know? 
Quote, it's a vicious cycle that begins with a fantasy that sparks their hunt for a victim that results in a murder that turns into a cooling off period that usually returns to life. Then, once the disappointment and bitterness gets the best of them, Kearney getting mad, they repeat the process. According to Peter Vronsky's book, Serial Killers, The Method of Madness and Monsters, it is seldom broken once this killing cycle is triggered. Over time, they become stuck in their process of addiction. That's when they tend to get more frenzied, their cycles become more frequent, and the level of violence increases. This continues until they are caught or burnt out. When a killer becomes burnt out, sometimes they commit suicide or move on to other crimes. Or maybe, like, switch up their MO to make it more interesting or keep it interesting. Yeah, exactly. Some even turn themselves into the authorities, like Patrick. (laughs) Uh, This is still a quote. A study was done on the patterns of 326 United States male serial killers who committed their crimes between 1800 and 1995. It concluded that approximately 87% of the perpetrators had murdered at least one stranger and 70% had only killed strangers. Wow. Among serial killers, the most prolific ones also happen to be the most organized in their methods. That means that they will take their time to stalk their victims, looking for the most suitable time to strike to decrease their chances of getting caught. They also tend to dispose of their victims' bodies as far away from their residence and hunting grounds as possible to reduce leaving any clues to their identity. According to James Allen Fox and Jack Levin in their book, The Will to Kill, anybody can be a serial killer's target. That's scary. (laughs) That is scary. However, most individuals who become victims of serial killers tend to be among society's most vulnerable, aka children, the elderly, and sex workers. Although it seems as if the most intriguing facet of serial killers is the circumstance of their motivation. They are committed as an effort to satisfy a person's intense need to wield power over others and act out their sadistic desires. In other words, a serial killer doesn't murder people for money, love, or a sense of justice. They kill because it makes them feel better about themselves. Damn. And again, I want to be clear, that's not my words. Those are verbatim from an article I found when I was researching. Uh, This being said, though, while I do not believe that Patrick was mentally ill, he's absolutely a sociopath. I know that word's kind of outdated, um, but that just makes it even more unpredictable and dangerous. But even uh, necromania or necrophilia, that's... That's an that's, Yeah, yeah. that's a uh, mental, mental disorder. Yeah, so that's the insane psychopath story of Patrick Kearney, and... That is incredible. I, I knew that what he had done, kind of, but I didn't know he had that many victims, and they were that close together. And his fucking IQ? Yeah. I'm surprised... That's incredible. Sorry, I'm surprised he's still in prison with that IQ. Maybe he's in, like, solitary or something. I don't think he... He probably doesn't have a desire to get out. That's true. He wanted to go. Yeah. So do you think that David was innocent? No. I don't think he was either. I don't. How can you not be that in... Like, I'm not saying you can't be that out of touch with your partner, but, like, to be that out of touch with your partner... So, like, I th- I think I might believe that he was, like, in denial... But I don't think that he didn't know what Patrick was doing. I think, yeah, I, yeah, I think that maybe he was comfortable with the lifestyle. You know, we heard that he made a lot of money that, yeah. that Patrick did. And, you know, he clearly left his wife. And I, I definitely know at least a couple or two that are with a same-sex partner, but they feel obligated to stay in that relationship because it's their first same-sex partner. Yeah. And I think maybe in David's case you know, since he was having an affair with Patrick mm-hmm. and then, you know, he divorced his wife, it would be like, well, I already did all of this. For this like guy. It would, for this guy. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, think about, like, a bad relationship you've been in where you know it's not best for you to be in the relationship, you're but like, you're, it's like... It's already been three years. But it's... <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's an obligation because yeah. there's... It would be more work to stop being in the relationship than to just continue being that's in the relationship. True. Yeah, I have some friends that are like that, too, so... Yeah, yeah. that's... Uh, it's just... I don't know if I believe... I mean, it, it just seems odd to me that David invited this kid over to their house and then he wasn't there when the kids showed up. That seems weird. But also, maybe he got caught up doing something and he just was running late. And then, mm-hmm. like, you know, this kid happened to come over and Patrick was just like... I mean, he, the source did say that Patrick didn't like visitors. So he just invited him in and he was like, sayonara. Like, that sounds bad, but, like, wh- I, I don't just, know. Like, and then with the eight-year-old on the bike, it's like... While he was being investigated. It reminds me of Monster House. I don't know if you've ever seen Monster House. But instead of, like, eating kids' toys, it's just eating kids. Yeah. That's his house. (laughs) Like, honestly. It's creepy. Like, (sighs) he just snatched neighborhood children and nobody knew. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a a wild ride. And I'll tell you what, I researched this, like, over a period of, like, a couple days. I like to spend a lot of time researching and I... And I have, like, multiple... I told you, I have multiple tabs open. You do the same thing where we, like, kind of make sure that we're in chronological mm-hmm. order. But I've since started researching another case. And so, like, I was rereading this one as I was saying it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I forgot about that. I forgot yeah. about that, you know? It's just so much information. Like, it's hard to keep track, you know, right. of, of everyone. But The homophobia hurt my heart, too. Oh, I know. And I'm sorry, again, sorry if I upset anybody by saying that word. And, you know, I know that the listeners know that that's not me speaking. Um, but I thought it was important. Um, but uh, I thought, <laughs> so, but I thought it was important, um, due to the fact that Patrick was homosexual, you know, when he decided to come out and, and he, that did really affect him as a child being right. called names like that. Um, when kids didn't even know that he was, you know, feeling that, that type of way. So. Right. And, you know, for the police officers as well yeah. to say all of those horrible things and not give a shit because like, it has awful. to deal with somebody in the queer community. Yeah. It's still happening today, Mary. Take care of it. (laughs) Take care of it. It's awful. (laughs) Yeah, it is awful. So much. So So we um, have had two pretty long episodes. I think we're going to try to start getting these long episodes rather than doing, I think, two-parters if they're not going to be two full hours. I think we're just going to put them in one episode. I I mean, I actually found myself, I sat through an hour and 45 minute long episode of another podcast um, the other day and I didn't even realize that it was an hour and 45 minutes because I was driving around. I do enjoy that, like starting one of our episodes and then driving around and then like getting out of the car going shopping getting back in and going oh yeah that's right yeah there's more I have more yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, i think that we both talked about potentially maybe like taking a little bit of a break for the mental breakdowns and just focusing on these big cases because right. we want to start putting out um now that we've kind of established ourselves as a podcast we want to start putting out those big name killers that you guys have been waiting for you know ted bundy and and you know btk and and anyway so yeah i'm really excited to uh get the ball rolling on those yeah. big names and if you guys have any suggestions please let us know again send us an email um G- uh, Diane Diagnosing a killer at gmail.com. Do you want to do the handles this time? I feel like I do them every time. I have no idea what they are. I always zone out at the end. I do because you really... <laughs> okay, I'm going to try it. Okay. okay. Uh, you can send us an email at diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. You can catch us on Instagram at diagnosingakiller. Yeah? Good so far? Okay. Um, that's our name. <laughs> TikTok at diagnosingakiller. What's the one that's at Killer Diagnosis? Twitter? That's Twitter, yeah. Twitter at Killing Diagnosis. Killer. Killer. <laughs> killing the Diagnosis. Killer Diagnosis. And. Patreon. Patreon at Diagnosing a Killer. 
Patreon.com slash Diagnosing Achilles oh, is shit. our Patreon. Well, if you want to donate to the Patreon. You've heard it enough times. We don't need to be perfect every time we say it. Y'all, we have stickers, and our patrons have received stickers. Yep, they have. Yep. Yep. And we put them on the back of our phones. They have QR codes. They have our handle, and they have our QR code that takes you right to our RSS page. It's true. You could put it on the back of your phone. You could put it on your dog's head. You could put it on, like, when you walk your dog. I don't know. You put it on your butt cheek. You can put it on your butt cheek. Yeah, put it anywhere. That's fine. <laughs> on your forehead, if you want. That's totally fine. If you want to get it tattooed, that's also cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. Could you dope. imagine? That would be awesome. Dope. You just gave me an idea. Oh, my God. Stop. <laughs> I'm going to get those tattooed. Oh, my God. That would be so legit. Right. I'm going to get it on my thigh, though. Oh, my Lord. We will update you if Kowal gets his tattoo. I'm not getting one. Thank that's you very much. So I have trashy. too many already. <laughs> so All right. We will see you guys soon. Please keep listening to us. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye.